Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Christmas is coming, and they're coming too, bringing some gifts and some baggage for you. One day, two day, three days or more. How do we survive those we adore? Your boss, whose idea of a holiday gift is making you work a long double shift. Your date for mom's dinner, who still lives at home and is not well acquainted with hard work or a comb. Perhaps it's your spouse who's on your last nerve, and you'd like to give them just what they deserve. Regifting that sweater which you know is too small, or coal in the stocking, or maybe nothing at all. Whomever the problem, whatever the reason, we all want to care for others this season. Yet friends and family, much loved though they be, can create much drama and much misery. What's to be done with all the confusion? Might we suggest an unsettling solution? So we're launching into a new series today called The Unsettling Solution for Just About Everything. And maybe you resonate with part of that little video. Maybe there's things coming up this, sum- this season where you're just like, ah, oh, I don't want to do that one. Or do, do those people really have to come over? Do I, do I really have to drive that far and go to that? Now, don't, don't stick up your hands or anything like that if you agree with that. But this is the kind of season where sometimes we have those feelings. And so we're launching into this series called The Unsettling Solution for Just About Everything. And it's based on the work of a pastor named Andy Stanley, who some of you may have heard of before. He's the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta. And a couple times you're going to see his name on the screen as I'm quoting some of the work he's done that provided the foundation for this series. But this unsettling solution really is for just about everything. And it's actually also for just about anyone too. Not just if if you say, this is my home, this is my faith, this is what I believe as a follower of Jesus. But this unsettling solution is really something that when we dig into it, we feel a little uneasy. We feel a little bit like, really, really that's it? That, that's what you want me to do? That, that, that actually makes me feel uncomfortable. That makes me actually maybe even a little anxious, a little like, that's the solution? And so as we dive into this series, I want to just encourage you to, to kind of dig into that. Like, why does this feel unsettling to us? Why does this feel difficult? Why does this feel hard to do? But I want to start before we get to that with something that I think that, to be honest, is a little naive and it's a little simplistic and it's something that when we think about the complexities of life and all our various backgrounds and experiences, we might say that that can't be true, but I think it is true. And I think that somewhere deep down, everyone wants Christianity to be true. Somewhere deep down, we like this idea of unconditional love. We like this idea of forgiveness for everything we've done. We like this idea that there is a purpose and meaning behind the world and behind everything we do. We like that idea deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, there is this piece that we say, wouldn't it be great if who Jesus says he is really is true? Wouldn't it be great if what Jesus did really did happen? And I think it did. But wouldn't that be great? Now, you might be thinking, well, but some people don't believe that. Well, here's what I think. I think there's a big difference between I don't believe it's true and I don't want it to be true. Because if you're saying, well, I don't believe it's true, 
Usually that means that we've come across something or we've experienced something or maybe the version of Christianity we grew up with, we kind of say, well, that didn't match up with Jesus. Or we look at experiences we've had, things maybe that someone said to us or the way they treated us, and we're like, that can't be true. Like if, if, if Jesus is who he is and, and you say you follow him and you treated me like that, well, this can't be true. Or maybe there's some informational pieces. There's some things that you've been wrestling with where there's like, I can't believe, I don't believe it's true because of X. Well, maybe you need to sit down with someone and, and wrestle through what that topic is. Why, why do we hold back from that? But on the other side of saying, I don't want it to be true, that's like saying, I don't want there to be unconditional love. I don't want there to be forgiveness. I don't want there to be meaning and purpose. And so maybe it's a little simplistic. Maybe it's a little naive. But I think that deep down, everyone wants Christianity to be true. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if it was real? And, and even if we are distant from God or we're distant from faith, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be closer? Now, I want to take us for a moment back to the 17th century and to a guy named Blaise Pascal. And he was a theologian and a mathematician and a physicist, a really brilliant Renaissance man of a guy. And he had this awakening of his faith later on in life. And in one of the works that he worked on and he wrote about, um, he had this saying in the middle of it as he was trying to explain and talk about faith. He said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Now, what he means and what he goes on to explain in this work is he says, when something is attractive to us, we search for ways to say it's true. So you guys know I like to barbecue. I like to smoke meat. I have a charcoal smoker. So I like it when I see someone using a charcoal smoker and making a really great food. And I get to say, see, look, a charcoal smoker is better than a pellet grill. It's better than a stick burner. Now, is that objectively true? I don't know. The jury's still out on that. Some people in this room would debate me on that. But I like it. It's attractive to me, and I want to find truth. Now, I'm not saying that because we find Christianity attractive, that therefore we should think it's true. But when Christianity is attractive to us, when things like unconditional love and forgiveness are attractive to us, we should be searching for truth. We should take that desire and turn it into questions and longing for more, looking for truth, looking for what's, diff- what's real about it, what is at the heart of it that stands out. Because there's something deeply attractive about Christianity. In fact, when the church begins, when the day of Pentecost happens, and the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, Peter, this guy who through all the Gospels gets everything wrong, He just keeps getting it wrong and wrong and wrong again. And when Jesus is arrested, he denies Jesus three times. But after the Holy Spirit comes, Peter gets up and he speaks a message. He speaks a sermon. And 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus that very day. And then as the church grows from about 33, 32 AD until 300 AD, one third of the entire Roman Empire is professing that Jesus is Lord. How does Christianity grow from a group of about 120 after Jesus' death to one-third of the Roman Empire by A.D. 300? And during that 300 years, Christianity, it wasn't approved to be part of that. If you were saying, I'm a Christian, you're opening yourself up to to, to prosecution, to persecution, sometimes even death. Many of the early church leaders were martyred, were killed for their faith. 
because they were advocating that people give their lives to Jesus to say that Jesus is Lord. So what is it that made Christianity in the first, second, third centuries so irresistible? What made it that people were willing to give their lives to Jesus? What made Christianity so attractive? And here's what it is. And this is the unsettling solution to just about everything that we're digging into, is grace. Grace is what is the unsettling solution. Grace is what makes Christianity so attractive. This whole concept, this piece of grace, what it is, what it means for us, what it does in us, what it does for us, is what makes following Jesus so attractive. This is the piece that we want to be true about Christianity when we encounter grace. Now, grace is what we all crave the most when our guilt gets exposed. So think about it when you were a kid and when you got home from school and you open the front door and mom's there and she's got this look on her face and she says, the principal called. You didn't know it then, but grace is what you wanted. Or maybe it's a little later in life and it's your first job and your boss sits you down and he's got some papers on his desk and says, you screwed up. You made a mistake. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm just about to get fired from my first job. You didn't know it then, but grace is what you longed for. Grace is also what we are so hesitant to extend to others when we see their guilt. Maybe you've been the boss on the other side of the table. Or maybe it's, it's something with your spouse where there was something they said they wouldn't do that they did or something that they did that they said they wouldn't do. And you're sitting there and it's laid right out there guilty. Grace is what we are so hesitant to give to others. See, grace is something that when we're on the receiving end, it is extraordinarily refreshing when we receive grace. But when grace is required of us, when we have to offer and give it to someone else, it is extraordinarily disturbing. So what is grace? What is grace? What are we talking about when we talk about this? Grace is simply the undeserved, unearned, and unearnable favor. Grace is when you receive something you do not deserve. When your boss, instead of handing you the pink slip and firing you, says, here's the plan of how we're going to overcome this. Here's the training piece that you're missing that you need to improve on. They they had every right in that moment to fire you, kick you out the door, and say, see you later. But instead, they gave you what you didn't deserve. Or maybe it's your spouse, when they have every right to banish you to the couch for months on end, says, no, we're going to work through this. Here's what we're going to do. I forgive you. See, forgiveness is an act of grace. We don't deserve forgiveness from anyone. But when someone gives forgiveness to us, it is so graceful. It's so refreshing. It's so, it just envelops our soul with warmth. But grace cannot be deserved. We can't be owed grace any more than you can plan your own birthday party. You can't plan your own surprise party and then show up and be like, surprise, oh hey, you planned a surprise party for me that I really was the one to plan. You can't do it. You can't plan your own surprise party in the same way. If you feel you deserve it, you cannot receive grace. 
Because the moment you say, well, I deserve grace from that person, I deserve their favor. And we're not talking favor in terms of like, I do something for you, then you have to do a favor back to me. That voids it immediately because you're putting deserving and entitlement into grace and they are incompatible with each other. Grace is when someone gives you favor that you do not deserve, you have not earned, and in fact, you cannot earn it even if you wanted to. And so you can ask for grace, you can beg for grace, you can plead for it. But the moment you think in the back of your mind, I deserve this grace, I deserve this favor, I deserve for them to be kind to me in a way that they don't have to, it's no longer grace. See, the truth about grace is simply this. We can't recognize it or receive it until we're fully convinced that we don't deserve it. Because if there's even part of our minds that we say, I deserve for you to treat me this way. I deserve for you, when my guilt's laid out on the table, when my flaws are open, and you have every right to end the relationship, you have every right to send me out the door, to send me with my bags packing, to say, no, no, but you deserve to give me another chance. I deserve another chance. That's not grace anymore. But one of the things that grace requires so deeply, and this is where grace gets so important, Grace always requires a relational connection between the giver and the recipient. You can't receive grace from an inanimate object. As much as some of you this morning forgot to plug in your cars, and you're like, oh, it's the first cold morning. Is my car going to start? And you crank it over and it starts. Your car wasn't really being gracious to you. It's just a machine. It just does what it does when the electrical and the physical systems of a car work. That's not grace. Grace always requires a relationship. See, this grace, this relational peace, this is why God had to show up. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other worldview and religion and belief. Because God chooses to show up in our world. God chooses to show up in our relationships. He chooses to show up and reveal himself to us out of this act of grace. Because we don't deserve for God to show up. We don't deserve for God to reveal himself to us. But he freely chooses to. He gives us this favor of being present with us. And in fact, we could never have known the grace of God without the presence of God coming into our lives, without God physically choosing to step into the world, to be born, to live, to teach, to demonstrate the kingdom of God. We could never understand grace without why Jesus came. Now, usually at Christmas time, When we start talking about Jesus, we go to two of the four Gospels that talk about Jesus' birth. And the Gospels were these eyewitness reports written by people that were, either two of them were written by Jesus' followers, two of them were written by people that were close to Jesus' followers that compiled it all together. And usually we end up going to Matthew or we go to Luke at Christmas time because they're the ones that tell us the story of the angel coming to visit Mary and Joseph and them riding a donkey on this long journey to Bethlehem where they can't find home with their family. They can't find home in an inn. And so Jesus is born in a manger and we know that story. But I want to take us to a different gospel for today. I want to take us to the gospel of John. We're going to spend a little bit of time in John. Then we're going to jump over Matthew and back to John. But John was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the first ones who walked and traveled with Jesus. And John actually got to live the longest. Out of all of the disciples that Jesus had, John was the only one that our church history tells us died a natural death. 
Every other one was martyred and executed for their faith at some point. And so John is getting elderly. He's getting old in his age. And he starts thinking, I need to write down what I know. I need to preserve this so that this gets to carry on for future generations so they can know Jesus the way I know Jesus. And so John sits down with likely a group of scribes, a group of his disciples that, that did the writing for him. Likely John could, was likely illiterate, or maybe he, he learned a bit of literacy later in, on in his life, but he had a scribe write down. And so he sits down and he's like, how do I start this story? How do I tell a story of miracles? How do I tell a story of healings? How do I tell the story of the, the incredible things that Jesus said that reframed our whole understanding of faith? How do I tell this story? How do I start it? And so John, in his wisdom and guided by the Holy Spirit, he starts with this concept that George Lucas shamelessly stole. If you've seen Star Wars, you know every Star Wars movie begins with the title crawl. It begins with the title, and then these words come sliding across the screen that tell you, here's what you need to know to get to the start of this story. You can watch any Star Wars movie, and they all have that title crawl. And George Lucas shamelessly stole it from John. Because that's how John begins the gospel. He begins with these 18 verses that we call the prologue. And these 18 verses set up and frame everything that John is about to say about Jesus. And so he begins with this sentence. He says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. In the beginning. Now those three words immediately hearken back to the very beginning of the Hebrew Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of our Old Testament, where Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created. Now, so John starts you thinking, oh, he's going to say the same thing, and then he twists it. He says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. And Word is capitalized. Word is a title. When he says Word, he is actually talking about Jesus, not the Bible, not the Word of God. He's talking about the Word. And he borrows this Greek term that means this is a word that brings life. This is a word that brings meaning. This is a word that brings purpose. And he says that to make you realize that what he's going to talk about is about meaning. It's about purpose. It's about life being given. So he says, in the beginning, the word already existed. It was already there with God. He says the word was with God and the word was God. And this is where we start seeing our doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when John is using this coded language to talk about Word, to talk about Jesus, he's saying the Word is God and is with God and was God. And he keeps going on and explaining the purpose of this Word that the whole rest of his gospel is going to be about. And we're going to jump down to verse 14. And John says, So the Word, so Jesus became human and made his home among us. He was full of grace and truth. In fact, some translations say he was all grace and all truth. See, this is who Jesus is. When Jesus has, we have this fancy theological term called incarnation, which means the divine wrapped in flesh, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, is born as a baby, grows up, and then when he reaches about 30 years old, starts to live out his faith. and starts now Not that he didn't live out his faith before, but he starts his ministry of teaching and telling people about God, telling this is who God really is. This is what our scriptures really mean. 
And John puts this important part in, he was all grace and all truth. Now, for us, when we try to live out grace and truth, we often try to hold these in a balance. We try to say, well, sometimes I'll be gracious and sometimes I'll be truthful. But the problem with us is anytime we, in our limited ways, try to balance grace and truth, we end up with neither one. In fact, if we try to say, well, I'm going to be somewhat graceful, but I also got to be truthful. I got to tell you what you did wrong, but I'm going to show you great. And and we, we sit in this balance where we're trying to figure them out. How do we balance these things out? And we end up with neither. 50-50 equals zero. But it's not that way when we come to Jesus because Jesus is all great, all truth, all the time. When he interacted with people, he wasn't afraid to call out what separated them from God. He wasn't afraid to call out sin, to call out guilt. That's the truth side. But then he was all gracious because then in the same breath, he doesn't condemn. In the same breath, he talks about there becoming a time where there is forgiveness for all sins, that Jesus himself goes to the cross as the sacrifice so that we can receive God's favor, so we can receive grace. This is what Jesus did. This is who he is. And this gets illustrated in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew Um, And we're going to talk, this is kind of a neat turning point in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, because the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew wasn't following Jesus yet. And so the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are actually what Matthew's compiled of other people's eyewitness. But in Matthew 9, Matthew meets Jesus. And so this is what happens, Matthew 9, 9. Jesus is walking along. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now, you've got to understand something about tax collectors in the first century. It was not a salaried job. In fact, the Roman rulers, whoever was, was in charge of that province, that area, would hire tax collectors and say, you need to, on the first of every month, bring me this much money in taxes. Go. That was it. That was the job description. So tax collectors had to raise extra money to collect extra taxes to pay their own salary. Now, you can imagine that if you're good at collecting taxes, you can make a pretty penny for yourself. And tax collectors were the most hated profession because you knew they had Rome backing them up. They had to collect these taxes. But you also knew that probably half or even like two-thirds of what they were collecting was just going straight into their own pocket. And so if you wanted to be wealthy, if you were mischievous, if you could be malicious... You could make a great tax collector. So this is what Matthew is. This is what he does. And Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple. Now, the other disciples at this point, guys like John, uh, Peter, Andrew, guys that are with Jesus already, they would be like, whoa, 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 hold up. You want one of them to walk with us? You want one of them to be taught by you? What are you doing? So Jesus calls Matthew because this is an act of grace. Matthew doesn't deserve to be a a disciple following a rabbi, a teacher of the Jewish law. And so what happens is is, is the next verse says later. Now, we don't know if this was like that day or that week or that month, but probably it was pretty soon because Jesus moves on from this town where Matthew was pretty quick. So likely this was pretty soon, like maybe within a week. Later, Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Now remember, Matthew's the one writing this. He knows what kind of sinners his group of friends is. And when we see dinner party, we're not talking formal dinner party. 
we're talking, this is likely a rager. Like, this is good food, good wine, good music, good entertainment. We're throwing a party. Because remember, these guys are all super wealthy. Money is nothing to them because they just get to go and collect whatever they want. And if you don't pay up, well, they just call a Roman guard over and he beats you till you pay. That's what they did. So Jesus goes to this dinner, this party, with a whole bunch of tax collectors and disreputable sinners. Now, why would you invite a rabbi to your big rager party? I mean, let's, let's make a little comparison here. Now, a lot of you probably have office Christmas parties coming up. Uh, how would you feel if I somehow got invited to your office Christmas party? Now, you'd probably be okay with that, but how would your coworkers feel? And when I show up, they introduce me as Reverend McNary, because, you know, that's actually my title. I never use it. But, but how, do you, how would you feel suddenly like, oh, the Reverend showed up? Better hide my drink behind my back. Better apologize for those F-bombs I was just dropping. It makes people uncomfortable. I know that I have this effect on people when I tell people what I do. And so sometimes I just say, well, I lead a nonprofit organization if I just want to dodge it. Because it's true. It's not the whole truth. It's still true. Now, and so Jesus is at this party, this rabbi, this well-known rabbi. What does that mean? Now, I, I'm not trying to equate myself with Jesus, okay? Don't, don't misquote me on that. You can ask Nikki. It's not the case. But if there's one thing worse than a rabbi showing up at your big party, there's this other group. And this other group is the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were this sect within Judaism, and they were the all-truth brigade. Zero grace, all truth. What they cared about the most was, are you following the law to the tiniest little bit? And so the Pharisees see that Jesus and his disciples are at this party, and they ask Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, chances are the Pharisees didn't even enter the party. They probably sent a messenger in because they're like, no, no, we don't associate with tax collectors. We don't associate with those scum. So they send in a messenger. And they go to Jesus' disciples on purpose because they're actually trying to split up the gang. They want Jesus' disciples to realize, oh, what are we doing here? Why is Jesus here? We should leave. They're trying to split up Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus overhears this conversation. And so he comes over, and I can imagine, the text doesn't say this, but Jesus usually didn't do things quietly if he was in a group. People hung on his words. He would speak this for everyone to hear. Jesus heard this. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. How does Matthew feel in this moment hearing that? Whoa, 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 Jesus, you just told me to follow you as, as your disciple, and now you just called all my friends sick? You just told me, you just say that all my friends are, are evil? You just told me all my friends are separate from God, they're sinners? Like, what are you doing? See, but Jesus said something very different than what the Pharisees said. Jesus is saying, yes, you're sick, you need a doctor, but I'm the doctor that's come to heal you. This is all grace and all truth in the same breath. This is saying the truth is, yeah, you're far from God. The truth is, your guilt is out on the table. Everyone knows it. But the grace is that I've come to heal you. The grace is that I've come to give you a path to God. The grace is that I've come to bring you freedom. See, Jesus reveals all their guilt, but he does not condemn them. And this is the reason why many of us will have baggage and issues with the church because we experienced seeing our guilt exposed, but we got condemnation 
instead. Instead of getting grace, all we got was truth. And this is why we come to this again. Jesus embodies all truth and all grace. And let's jump back to the Gospel of John. And where these Pharisees are almost kind of like cockroaches. You can't really get rid of them in the New Testament. And so there's this time a little later on in his ministry where Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem. And he's not just like in the city. He is at the temple. And the temple is this symbolic place of God's presence with the, with the, the Israelites, with the, the nation, that God is there. And Jesus is on the steps of the temple. He's not even just like in the courtyard where people would gather. He is on the steps of the temple, which leads to what's called the most holy place. And in the center of the temple is the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest could only enter that room once a year after this like month-long purification process. And in fact, when the high priest went in, they tied a rope to his leg, because if he hadn't purified himself, if he wasn't seen fit to stand in the most holy place, and he died, they would have to drag his body out by the ankle. So Jesus is in front of this temple. Jesus is there, and he's teaching. And guess who shows up? The Pharisees. So as he's speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, first off, where's the dude? Where's the guy? No, no, they only brought her. They let the guy off the hook. They bring her. She's probably wrapped in just a bed sheet. Probably wasn't even allowed to get dressed properly, and they drag her to the temple steps to the front of the most holy place, like as if it was like right here on this stage. And they put her in front of the crowd. They put her in front of Jesus. And they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, not get her high. That means to throw like softball-sized rocks at her until she's dead. What do you say? Now, they're trying to trap Jesus because they know Jesus is gracious. They know if he lets her off the hook that they can now say, well, look at this. This rabbi is breaking the law of Moses. We can get rid of him. We can have him killed. And they keep demanding an answer, and Jesus ignores them. And they keep demanding an answer, and finally Jesus responds. And he stands up and he says, all right, but let the one who has never, never sinned throw the first stone. Now, this is something radically different. This is something that had never been heard of before Jesus. Because when he says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone, he's making all the Pharisees look at themselves. He makes all of her accusers look inward for a moment. And one by one, starting with the oldest of the group of Pharisees, they slip away and disappear, leaving Jesus and this woman wrapped in a bedsheet in front of the crowd. And so then Jesus stands up again and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Doesn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus is saying to her in this moment, you are guilty, but I do not condemn you. This is what makes Jesus so different. This is what makes Jesus so radical. This is what makes Jesus so unlike anything else. Because her guilt was fully on display. Her guilt was wide open for everyone to see plain as day. And Jesus says, all right, you are guilty. But I do not condemn you. That is what grace is. When our guilt is on the table, when it's laid out for anyone to see, God says, I don't condemn you. 
We don't deserve that. We can't earn that. But God gives it freely to us. Now, we might be looking at this, and this is where the unsettling and where the tension comes in, is we look at this and we say, well, grace isn't fair. You're right. It is not fair. Grace is never fair because it's undeserved. In fact, we may look at that story like that and say, well, how come I couldn't got that grace when my guilt was exposed? Well, we're flawed. We're not Jesus, but we're trying to be transformed to be more like Jesus. And so we have to take this approach of saying, well, do we condemn when we see others sin? Or do we act like Jesus who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world? And so sometimes we look at situations we've been in and we say, well, why didn't I get grace? And that's a dangerous question because that starts us on the path towards entitlement of saying, why didn't I get something? That's saying, why didn't I deserve grace? Well, we don't deserve grace, but we receive it when it's freely given. Or sometimes we look at this and we look exactly at that story of Jesus being there with the woman caught in adultery and we say, doesn't Jesus care about justice? Justice in that moment under their law at their time was for her to be killed. Doesn't Jesus care about justice for the oppressed? Does grace mean that we just get a free pass on everything? And that's the tension we're going to dive into next week. Is how do we handle this tension of grace when it eats at us, when we need to show it to someone else, but we don't want to? Or sometimes we ask this, we say, well, how will they learn without consequences? If they don't get punished for their sin, how will they ever learn to turn from it? Think about that woman for a moment. Her sin is exposed. Her nakedness is exposed. She's right there. And Jesus admits to her guilt. He says, all right, you've sinned. You did something wrong. You did something that deserves death. But I don't condemn you. He says, go and sin no more. Do you think she changed her life after that moment? Of course she did. Because she came into this moment of seeing God's grace and truth so clearly, she probably understood it deeper than anyone in that area, anyone at the temple, anyone else in that moment. She saw a picture of God's grace lived out, given to her. That changes lives. That changes the way we see things. That changes the way we act. When we see grace, it makes us learn. It makes us change. But this is the difficult part with, with, with grace. Is when our guilt condemns us, we crave grace. But when we see someone else's guilt, they crave grace too. And we have this opportunity, when we see someone else's guilt, to administer and to give that same grace, that undeserved, unearned, and unearnable favor. To give someone what they do not deserve. To give someone a path forward, to give someone hope, to give someone healing, to give someone restoration, to give someone redemption. Those are all acts of grace. That is why grace is the unsettling solution to just about everything. No matter what situation we're in, when someone else's guilt is exposed, when those in-laws are coming over that you dread because of what they said about your cooking or what they said about your standard of how clean the house is and you just already in the back of your mind just, oh, I don't want them to say that comment again. Their guilt is exposed by that. And you have the opportunity to give grace. You have the opportunity to give healing, to give hope, to do something that breaks that cycle of guilt 
begetting anger, begetting more guilt. That is why grace is the unsettling solution to just about everything. Let me take a moment and pray for us. God, we are so gracious and we are so thankful and grateful that you saw fit to give us grace, that you saw fit to step into the world to give this relational connection to us that we do not deserve, that we cannot earn, but you give it freely to us. And God, I pray this week that you would open our eyes to be able to see the places and the ways and the times when your grace has been upon us, when we didn't deserve it, but your favor was there because of your deep love for us. God, I pray that we would be able to see those things clearly as we reflect on our own lives. But Lord, I also pray that you would prompt us when we see the guilt of someone else, when we see their flaws and their failings laid out clearly, that instead of demanding truth, that we would temper it with grace, that we would be this reflection of your grace with those that we meet, that those we encounter. So Lord, would you guide us and lead us and prompt us in these ways this week. In your name we pray. Amen. So next week we're continuing on this series and we're going to keep talking about the tension pieces of why grace is the unsettling solution for just about everything. See you next week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.